and welcome to the American Voters Alliance podcast. I'm Jacqueline Timmer, the founder and director of American Voters Alliance, and I have with me my co-host, Tim Griffin, who is our legislative liaison and grassroots director. Hey, good morning, Jacqueline. Good morning, Tim. How are you doing? I'm doing so good. I'm going to move the microphone away. There's a lot going on this week. Uh, Politico, New York Times, the Biden bucks, stuff coming out of Georgia and Arizona. Where do you want to start at? I mean, I always like talking about Biden's executive orders, but I really like your, what I what I fondly like to refer to as your media debut with Politico. You want to start there? Um, yeah, we can start there. I mean, apparently, you know, every Tuesday for a couple of years, Jacqueline, we've been doing, a, you know, a call with activists from all over the country. And, you know, really the purpose is to try to make sure that we have, you know, fair elections. And we want to make sure that there's not that any side wins, but that the elections are honest and fair. And um, apparently someone's been recording those calls. And I think that the media is trying to uh, construe it as something that it's not. Um, and I'll just kind of leave it there. It's unfortunate. Well, I think part of the danger right now, and we've talked about this before, is the weaponization of ethics boards and the weaponization of using the law when you have a totalitarian type of governance. You can't apply the law equally across the board. We have too many areas of criminalization. Phil talks about this all the time. I'm trying to paraphrase it briefly. But when there's this arbitrary application and arbitrary interpretation of legal issues, it becomes a dangerous environment for freedom of speech. And so these calls are completely above board. It's people coming together, talking about concerns with the elections. And yet, and I'll use this to transition over to the Biden executive order. But yet we have a president who talks about essentially if people are questioning the election process, that they're more or less domestic terrorists. And then right. he goes ahead, issues an executive order that appears by some, um, some have claimed that it, it really is concerning on a legal basis. So there's definitely a double standard that we're seeing here and the application of, again, ethics, but also how the media is portraying these types of communications and conversations. I agree. We had a story this week out of Washington State where their courts are going and sanctioning people for bringing lawsuits. They're sanctioning attorneys for bringing lawsuits. This, this kind of dovetails with David Brock from the Obama administration where he wanted to actually go after conservative attorneys. He, the quote that he says is he wants to name and shame them in their local communities for bringing lawsuits. And I, I think one of the problems with that is that you know, we use the courts to uh, prevent any other type of uh, getting together and, and solving our differences in ways that people wouldn't want. The courts are there as part of a civilized Western culture thing to help determine what our differences are. And if we're going to crush opposition in the courts, I'm afraid of where that leads, leads us. Well, if we're going to weaponize our government system in order to crush political opposition and ideological opposition, we've completely transformed yeah. from what we were intended to be as a nation. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So that kind of leads us into the Biden bucks issue because, you know, we've talked about this before. The Biden administration, you know, 2020 was about the nonprofits. You know, Jacqueline and Phil are really experts on that. The nonprofits coming in and hijacking our elections with nonprofit private dollars. In 2022 and 2024, people are expecting the Biden administration through executive order to, or to order all of the different administrative heads to submit plans to the White House, to submit them to Susan Rice. And Susan Rice will tell you, uh, tell nonprofits they're allowed to go into places where, you know, where you would traditionally have like bread lines for, you know, people that want to eat at a soup kitchen or people that want to sign up for free health care or homeless veterans, any kind of government sponsored program like that. They're going to bring nonprofits in. They're going to use federal, uh, federal dollars, federal agencies, federal buildings to bring in these people, register them to vote and then get out the vote on behalf of demographics that traditionally favor Democrats. Um, and that's kind of the background. There's a Daily Signal article out this week that really talks about the three violations of the law. It could violate the Hatch Act, which is where, where you know federal employees are not supposed to engage in political, like get out the vote efforts while they're on duty, which is exactly what this is. The Anti-Deficiency Act, which is essentially saying, um, you know, you can't accept voluntary services from outside if it's not already, you know, allowed in what your government, your government role is. It's basically saying, stay in your lane, don't let people come in and, and overtake that. And then third, the National Voter Registration Act actually lays out what the federal government's role is in elections. It's very clear. It's very, very express. And that's kind of goes, that kind of dovetails with the Ninth and Tenth Amendment, right? Like the federal government has express powers and they shouldn't go beyond those. So that's kind of what this Daily Signal article laid out is kind of three potential violations of the law that Biden's executive order does. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Well, I think that one of the main issues, and we've, we've talked about this probably before, is the disparate treatment element. Because 
at ABA, at Amistad, we really focus on this issue of disparate treatment, that there needs to be equal treatment of ballots and voters before the law across the board. Mm -hmm. And that's the same yep. issue with the ethics complaints and the ethics violations, how that's been weaponized, is that it's applied to some and not to others. And so right. we're seeing this pattern when it comes to the election process, and we're really seeing this pattern when it comes to the Biden administration and how they play favorites. They just play favorites before the law. And so with, with the executive order, of course, and we've talked about this before, but the danger of it being, this is targeting a particular ideological demographic of people mm -hmm. as opposed to another demographic. And so it's disenfranchising the American voice as a whole and really manipulating the way that the vote is tallied and understood and counted. Right. And they're doing that with government funds. That was first done with private funds through a public office, which again, it's that same you know violation of jurisdiction, but now we're seeing that where private agendas are being forwarded through public offices. And what's even more appalling is that it's the highest office in the US. You know, mm -hmm. this isn't happening with the mayor, which which is a problem and was a problem in, in Green Bay, Kenosha, et cetera. We're seeing this from the president's office. And so right. that there's that willingness to play favorites through the administrative state and through government dollars is appalling. Yeah. I agree with you. I mean, I, I think it's really problematic. So it's something that we're kind of watching for the rest of this year. Um, so is that so if we can move on from that, I want to talk about a couple other things real quick. Um, but I do want to say I do want to say yeah. that our model legislation helps mm -hmm. address some of these issues further. So, yes, there are potential illegalities now and there needs to be litigation around that. But also our model legislation really deals with, hey, what do we do when it comes to federal dollars coming into the election process? Yeah. What do we do when private monies come into the election process? How do we address these sorts of things? How do we protect equal treatment before the law? Okay, back to you. No, no I mean, I think you're right. Equal treatment before the law, because what we're seeing is they're saying we want to help historically disenfranchised people groups. But they don't, right? That's a lie. They right. they they target on Demo Democrat demographics in the cities. That's all they do. I mean, if you really want to help out historically disenfranchised people, what about women all over the country? I mean, it wasn't yep. until the 20th century that women had the right to vote, and yet they're not focusing on getting out the vote for votes. women. I want my right. vote in California. <laughs> I want my vote in Virginia. Well, if you move back to California, you probably get two you votes know what? out there. I, I've um, got multiple ballots floating around out there. I need to call the clerk's office, but maybe I could just have Mary pick them up and send them here, and then I'll mail them back. Oh, right. And in all that seriousness, was I, that was a joke. No, I know, but I, but I, I talked. In case somebody takes this to Politico, I'm not voting multiple ballots in California. Okay, sorry. I, I talked to Mary last night, who is in California now, and Mary has received multiple ballots at her residence that are not for her. And so what is, the, you know, two different ballots. So, so she voted for herself. And what if she was someone that wanted to go and vote for two other people? I mean, that's a major problem. And this is why fraud is so rampant in California and why people have lost faith in that system. It's just messy. And, and when I say it's just messy, I'm not um, minimizing the mm. other risks and issues that are involved. What I'm saying is that we as Americans have the technology, the resources and the capability to be better than messy. And when it comes to elections, we shouldn't be sloppy. We shouldn't be messy. We're okay. better than that. And we're this goes towards your op-ed on France. Yeah, the op-ed on France. And even with the gubernatorial recall, you know, when Newsom was recalled, there were a number of issues in the election process. And people were like, well, how do you know this is fraud? And how do you know this is whatever? Well, that's not even the point. The point is that this is messy and it creates right. issues where people can't have faith in the process. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, all right, I want to hop down to Georgia if we can, because Georgia had a primary a couple of weeks yes. ago, and Georgia has Dominion machines, and they have those, I think, those, uh, the ballot marking devices, right, where they go in, and they don't actually vote on the paper ballot. They're not holding the paper and the pen. They're voting on a screen. The screen prints off what they call a paper ballot, but it's not really. It's a piece of paper, the receipt, that has barcodes that reflect how you supposedly voted. But what you're reading showing you how you voted is not what the barcode. The barcode is what the computer reads, what the, the Dominion scanner or tabulator. So, okay, sorry. So when you go in, you use the touch screen. You say, you know, I want to pick this person, this person, this person. Then it prints mm -hmm. off a, a receipt. But on the receipt, it's just barcodes. It doesn't actually tell you, you mark this, this, and this. It gives you computer speak for the computers to communicate, but not for you to verify, correct? Yes and no. I mean, it will show you if you voted for Biden or Trump, it will show you that. 
But what it's right. showing you right. is not what the computer's reading. The barcode is separate from that. And that's right. what Georgia runs off. That's what a lot okay. of states run off. So there was a local Democrat primary last week on Tuesday, and they have that system, the runoff system in Georgia, where if you don't get 50% plus one, you go to a runoff. And so the third place candidate and Democrat candidate in this race said, wait a second, I want a recount. So they, they went back, they did a recount, and oh my gosh, um, she had 3,000 more votes in the recount. And actually, like every single... Um, every single uh, candidate had more or less votes. And so she was the third place uh, candidate and she went up to being the first place candidate once 3000 votes showed up in the paper ballot count. And so people are saying, wait a second, why did the machine count her lower than the 3000 ballots that she actually got? So now she was gonna be excluded from the runoff and now she's going to be uh, the, the first leading candidate in the runoff. And you think, I mean, I think a lot about how close our elections are, you know, yeah. how much of a difference they make. If you remember, when Ron DeSantis was running for governor in Florida, um, he won very narrowly against the Democrat candidate. The Democrat candidate was later found passed out allegedly in a hotel room with all kinds of surrounded by all kinds of you know issues in that in that hotel room. That's how close Florida was to having that man leading the state versus Ron DeSantis, who I think arguably has done a fantastic job during COVID and has been a leader for the nation. That's what that's what our elections come down to. And that's what these minor differences really make. And so Georgia is really bothering a lot of people. You know, we can't see inside of those machines. We don't know what happened. And we're kind of waiting to see what actually happened in Georgia. Well, and it's one of those things, too, where, you know, machines haven't been our primary emphasis at ABA or Amistad. And yet we've said from the very beginning that there's a huge transparency issue here. Mm -hmm. And you pointed that out with the barcode because the barcode is communicating something, but we can't communicate right. with that barcode. That is machine right. talk. And so yeah. you have to bring in an expert. Well, then that goes back to we're outsourcing everything to experts and the administrative state. Mm -hmm. It's like having Fauci come in and run our elections. So right. how do we approach these issues when there's a huge transparency element? And then here's part that, that Amistad has emphasized is that what we're understanding is the push for machines, just like the switching campaign finance reform, came right after Bush v. Gore and is largely Soros funded. And it ties into this whole nonprofit network. And so the push to move away from transparent, accountable, inclusive elections started happening around that time frame. And we see machines as a part of that pattern. Mm -hmm. Now, are we saying that all fraud is taking place through machines or there's tons of machine fraud? We don't know. And that's the problem because we should be able to know. We should be able to tell and be able to verify. So we have to move away from that. And I'm going to plug the model law again, but in the model election reform, we really advocate for moving back to a paper ballot, just like France, because France is doing it. Other modern areas currently are doing this where you can have a paper ballot for a single person on a single day that is hand counted and it can be done efficiently and it can be done with, with low error percentages or human error, but lower percentages than what I think are lower than what we saw in Georgia. Yeah. All right. I think that leads us to South Carolina. A lot okay. of people are talking about South Carolina this week. Um, there was a big omnibus bill that passed. I think there was a kind of a, they were loggerheads with the House and Senate, but they passed an omnibus, which is that word they use to kind of say like a coverall. It's like a huge topic and it's got this election bill that, that went through. So there's a lot of good things. They name all the good things, all, you know, all the things that you would expect, paper ballots, accountability, um, all these transparency, banning of Biden, or excuse me, Zuckerbucks, right? The, the two all 2020 the issue, all the right? All the bucks. Well, the not the federal ones, here. but <laughs> so what, but what this bill does, you know, some people are saying, well, on the other side, here's a couple of things that South Carolina did not do right. Um, first of all, they went from no early voting to 14 days of early voting. Um, and, that, and that's like a big issue. And, and the second one is they said that the, uh, the local, and I want to read this, this language because I think it's, I want to get it right. Um, it, it's, uh, oh, I missed it. In South Carolina, they said there's like an, a governing elections board for the state and you appoint people to it just like a lot of states. And the executive director is like the appointed person for the elections commission. And the, and the statute says, uh, no one can serve on the elections commission commission or serve as executive director of the agency if he or she quote makes a written or oral statement intended for general distribution or dissemination to the public at large discrediting the merit of a state election law so it's saying you can't serve on the governing board or you can't be the director of elections if you have made a statement discrediting the merit of state election law so those have been two things that people have had a problem with in regards to south carolina specifically i think people are saying 
Number one, yes, they just got early voting for the first time, but they're saying it's a good trade-off because they got rid of some of the mail-in voting. And I don't necessarily disagree with that. I think, I think even though correlation is not causation, the Virginia race shows us that if you have more early voting, it can cut down on mail-in balloting. I'm, I'm not saying that if you want to get rid of mail-in balloting, that's an easy way to do it. Um, and then secondly, it sounds like this whole freedom of speech issue with the Elections Commission in South Carolina was largely determined um, by one actor who was apparently saying things that people didn't like. And there's some kind of drama in South Carolina. And that's sometimes how you get bad laws, right? I think Phil has said that. You, you have one bad situation. That's what Georgia did. They, they didn't like Raffensperger as the Secretary of State, so they got rid of his vote on the, on the election, State Elections Commission. And now the leading elections official in the state has no vote. I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy how you, one situation can lead to bad law. I mean, what are your thoughts? What are you hearing on the South Carolina law? Honestly, love your point as far as how personal vendettas in politics can lead to bad law. I just think that that's actually a really huge issue. And it's something, of course, that transcends beyond, beyond election issues that we need to be aware of as we're involved in politics because there is so much infighting that is completely unnecessary. So that's a whole... I mean, that's a whole soapbox I have. You know that, Tim, that's a soapbox I get from my dad. So it just like goes on and on and on. It's like a whole stage. So anyway. Let me ask you about this First Amendment issue, because we first saw this come up in Colorado earlier this year. They didn't like what Tina Peters, who was one singular clerk in Colorado, was saying. So they say you can't hold this position if you don't walk the party line. It sounds like something that you'd see out of you know China. That's that China won't appoint officials unless you're willing to repeat the party line. And so now in America, we have this is another law. This is going to be law now where you you can't serve in, in public office. You can't have a part in our elections if you express distrust in it. What does that do to the system? What message does that send to voters? You're spot on. It completely erodes it. Okay, and so now we're going to welcome in uh, Representative Janelle Branchen from Wisconsin. Um, she's somebody that's been a leader on a Wisconsin election issues for the last few years. Um, everybody knows a lot about how CTCL, which we've talked about at length on here, uh, really started off with the big five cities in Wisconsin. Um, so I want to welcome the representative. Thanks for being on here this morning. Well, good morning. Thank you. Um, so let's let's can you explain a little bit? I know you that you're in the state house. I know that you are the chairwoman of the elections committee. Can you talk a little bit about the work that you did and, and if that was responsive to what happened in the 2020 election? We've talked previously on this podcast a lot about the issues that came up with the Wisconsin five, the big five cities that received CTCL money and how that really um, hijacked the election in favor of nonprofits over government officials in the Wisconsin 2020 election. What's been your committee's response and the state house's response to what happened in 2020? Well, you know, I think there was this delayed getting the information, right? Now, a year and a half, two years later, we have all this information. So immediately after the election, we had quite a few representatives in the Green Bay area do open records requests. Representative Shea Sortwell, um, we had Representative Ron Tussler. And so, of course, when you ask for things in November, they show up in February, right? right. So now, if you're lucky. We got, yeah, we got 10,000 plus emails, all out of order, all out of date, all, I mean, just a complete disaster. But as we started to read through these 10,000 emails, we realized, you know, that we had people that were coordinating at a level we've never seen mm -hmm. in the state of Wisconsin. So putting them in order, making them a value. And that's where you saw Eric Cardell come in, you know, God bless the Thomas More Society, help us put this together in a, in a fashion that made sense. And that's when you saw that first hearing in March where the Thomas More Society laid out for us what we saw from Milwaukee, Racine, Kenosha, and how their coordination and calling themselves the Wisconsin Five was not random, but really a business plan to make sure that they could turn out the vote in these Democrat areas. Yeah, and I, I agree. I think, you know, Phil Klein and Amistad and working with Thomas More Society and Eric and Tom Olp and all they've been doing has really uncovered this. You know, one of what, what I view it as is the contracts that came in from CTCL with local governments kind of supplemented what the state law was. So instead of you saying, hey, this is how we're going to hand out ballots, this is how we're going to set up absentee voting sites. Uh, they said the locality said we're going to do what CTCL tells us to do because otherwise we've got the clawback provision where we're going to take back all the money we gave you and you're going to owe it. So now you are beholden to us rather than beholden to the voters and to the government. Well, right. And, you know, there's the old saying of, you know, well, why, why did you rob banks? That's where the money was. Right. That's why you now see these nonprofits involved in the clerk's office because that's where the ballots are, Right. 
that's where the, the curing, they're, they're going to be accepted or not accepted, mailing out ballots, you know, using the, um, the, the, uh, the voter list. All of that is managed within the clerk's office, a constitutional office in the state of Wisconsin. But now you have private money moving into the clerk's office and also in Democrat mayors having a hand in how the clerks are going to be able to manage elections. Mm -hmm. That's a completely different process than we knew as constitutional officers, as clerks were separate, right? That they had that authority under the Constitution. So here we have, can we say meddling in the clerk's office? Is that that the right word? Or putting partisan money into, you know, what the results would be? Right. Um, Jacqueline, can you can you open this up? Because I know I think you speak really articulately on the difference between laws and procedures that were changed in 2020 that kind of led to um, unlawfulness and then actual fraud, which is something different um, and how that may have led to fraud and, and how that, you know, I think democracy in the park is a good example. of that. Yeah. So and, and I have some questions for you, Representative Branch, in a minute on jurisdiction and, and kind of how the legis- what the legislature's authority specifically is in Wisconsin and how you've been utilizing that in these investigations. Um, but what Tim was referring to a moment ago, and we speak about this a lot at ADA or American Voters Alliance, is the distinctions between fraud and lawlessness. And so specifically, we've looked at this um, extensively in Wisconsin, how there were admissions very early on that the election process was not actually conducted or administered according to Wisconsin election law. And because of that, there's difficulty in having faith in those results. And so there's a question of whether those elections should be certified because there isn't that transparency and accountability in the process because it's not conducted legally with the precautions and checks and balances in place in order to ensure that there wasn't fraudulent activity. And yet the the cry of the media and the cry of the the specifically the progressive leftist media is, well, show me the fraud, show me it was systemic and show me it would overturn the election and do this in 2.5 minutes or else I don't believe anything you say. And we're not going to look at this or bat an eye anymore until it's the next political cycle. And then there's suppression and there's machine issues and, you know, whatever. So. With that, being able to distinguish these issues and understand them specifically in the legislative context, I I know you're not a career politician. You came into this pretty fresh and you got a really heavy burden right away. So what does that process look like? What's what's the jurisdictional, I guess, procedure for the legislature when it comes to your involvement in the election, understanding these legal issues and fraudulent issues and the application of that? So in the state of Wisconsin, you know, we're, we're probably a little bit of an outlier that we have a bottom-up process for our clerks, right? Our 1,900-plus clerks are the ones that carry out the election, and they are the ones that are charged with carrying out elections, right? So then we have this Wisconsin Election Commission that was to help them do this process. Now, unlike other states, our, our county uh, clerks do not necessarily have any authority over our municipal clerks. And so now, you know, we, we gave all this power to the clerks or constitutional officers. And now we have kind of a wild west of who is what the process is for carrying out an election with 1900 different clerks and a Wisconsin Election Commission that has said, number one, recently that they are no longer investigating. Number two, they will not take any more complaints about CTCL. And just recently said that if people have questions about who should be on the voter list, they don't have, they get to determine who's a reliable source of information for who's on the voter list. You you clerks get to be the determinant who is a reliable source of if somebody is moved, if somebody is dead, if they are now these this group. And think about the power of that, that the state of Wisconsin has now got a, and, and let's be real clear, these clerks, a majority of them work really hard to do the very best they can, right? Yeah. But then you have the Milwaukee clerk and the Madison clerk in the 2020 election saying, hey, you can mark yourself indefinitely confined to the point that the Supreme Court had to step in and say, right. you know, you not. And that meant our voter rolls of people who did not have to show an ID in the state of Wisconsin 
went from almost 70 or 60 or 70,000 to 260,000. I want to remind I mean, people what that indefinitely confined was. I mean, that, that's a law that was made for people that were sick in bed that couldn't leave. And then in 2020, Weck told people, uh, if, if you're afraid of COVID. And- you know, the clerks in Madison and Milwaukee, heavy demand. You can just mark yourself indefinitely confined until the Supreme Court stepped in. And and so, you know, in the state of Wisconsin, with only a 22,000 vote margin, 47,000 people in the state of Wisconsin had never voted before voted indefinitely confined, meaning their very first election for 47,000 people without an ID in the state of Wisconsin. I mean, that those, that's a significant, that came from a report from our own LAB Legislative Audit Bureau in the 2020 election. And Representative Branchon, may I ask, and, and I don't know if the emails show this, I've seen a ton of things come out of those emails, but was that was that by any chance known to be advice from the CTCL or any of these nonprofit groups as far as the indefinite confinement? Is that something that has been connected back or, or no? Is that mostly just really sourced in these clerks so far? Um, I would say that, you know, that was happening well before the election. Remember our spring election, yeah. um, we had, you know, a lot of concerns the night before the spring election the governor of the state of Wisconsin tried to stop the election. And the Supreme Court, again, was called Mm -hmm. in and said, no, we must have an election. And some of the mayors as well in these Wisconsin five areas, if I understand correctly. So they went from the city. Yeah, the city of Milwaukee went from almost 200 voting locations to six. And Green Bay went to two? Green Bay went to two. People were in line for hours. It was raining. It was a miserable day. So talk about suppressing the vote. Though in the spring, it was a completely different story than than what we had done in the fall. And I think it's so interesting because you pointed this out earlier. That's really not the mayor's role or the governor's role. That's the clerk's role, according to Wisconsin law. So, you know, there's this bottom up that that has some issues as far as the consistency, but this top down thing has come in and it's just obliterating the system. At least that's what it well, sounds I, like. I, well, and I think it puts the clerks in the wedge, right? The clerks thought for many years that the information from the Wisconsin election commission was law, but it was really just guidance. Right. And right. that's where I think you're trying to guidance is worthless. Law is law. But if I have an election commission saying, well, you know, you could do X, Y, or Z, that's where I think a lot of the the ability for these 1900 clerks to be confused. Right. Now, I want to I want to go back for just a second. Tell us a little bit more about your committee and the investigation that that you all have put forward. Because you're obviously very knowledgeable. So there's been success in your organization in in finding information and pulling that together and synthesizing it. So help us understand that process that you've been a part of and and kind of the trajectory of all of that. And if I can jump in there and and the the contrast between the Gableman investigation and what you guys were doing specifically in your committee, if that's okay. Sure. Um, Well, I, I don't know that there's necessarily a contrast. As we got information, we would have hearings um, and you know, once the emails came out from um, Eric Cardell and the Thomas More Society, there was just more and more information that we got. For instance, we got the emails that show um, the city of Milwaukee building a real-time system for ballots and that, you know, this Michael Spitzer Rubenstein was using um, a nonprofit co- uh, tech company to help build this, right? So what does that mean? That meant that these Democrat cities had a real-time system for when the ballots were coming in through the post office, what the post office routes were, what color you were voting, what how every ward was broke down by your color, Hispanic, white, black, if you voted in person, if you what well, your ballot was in mail. Well, this gives the opportunity to just supposedly voting navigators to go out and, and get these ballots, right? They now have information real time on election day. We've never had before. It was quote unquote, all built with nonprofit money. So I have to tell you that my legislative counterparts 
both Republicans and Democrats have had a hard time believing this. We have the emails. It, it's in the weeds a little bit. But the ability to build a system, use the IT department from Milwaukee to help build this with a quote unquote nonprofit to build a real time system so Democrats can track every night how many ballots are outstanding and what still can come in. It was a game changer for Milwaukee. Right? And when you say voter navigators, I mean, this is not something that was authorized by statute. It's not like a, a phrase that appears no, in law in Wisconsin. Right? You're right. It, it's a made up it, term. They just made it up. Yep. And so what a voting navigator did or how they were paid or who was responsible for them, we have no idea other than the fact that they were supposedly to help during the election. But I'm going to tell you in, in Republican areas, we didn't have any. We're only in Democrat areas. Well, and it's such a weird, ambiguous place because not only is it just a made-up name and made-up role, but it's are these government officials and like assistants for the clerk, or are these nonprofit operatives, or are they subject to FOIA? Where are they? Who do they report to? Is there any kind of accountability around this role? And it doesn't appear that there really was. No, and then the other question is, we believe that we have emails that show that they had a direct access into our voter database. We believe that we have emails that clearly show that, yes, they found a way in and they were getting this information in real time instead of getting it from either the from either the, the system themselves, which Republicans have to pay for every night, right? right? So, um, you know, data is king. And I hate to say the Republican Party needs to realize that we are behind in the process of these data systems being built, which, you know, was a labor of love for the state of Wisconsin to give an advantage to Democrats. I mean, it, 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 it's the truth. So, you know, what you're doing is you're building the machine instead of having Fred be responsible for Ward 47, 48, 49. It's now accessible uh, and, a, and a data system, right? The Chicago machine is now a data system. Does that, does that make sense? It, it does. And I think it speaks to our culture really as a larger whole that we've moved away from relationship and, you know, go. I actually can go to my neighbor, Mary, and ask for sugar or to use their laundry machine because ours isn't working. That's a huge blessing. A lot of us don't have that in America. You know, it's very isolated and it's all about what's being projected to us on our phones. And we become the stats that are then used and mobilized in order for essentially corporate oligarchs, I would say, um, whether on the financial side, and now we see their heavy involvement in the election process. So um, that, I mean, that makes a whole lot of sense. I do have a question about that, and it left my mind as I was talking about Mary, but Tim, I saw that you had something you were wanting to say there. Well, I was going to say, so, I mean, that's why they had to break people down by stereotypes, Hispanic, Black, White, because they believe that certain percentages of each of these groups would be voting in a particular way, and, and that's why they had to break people down by race and sex and color. I mean, who who does that, right? Would that almost be considered racist if this was any other group trying to mm -hmm. break out voting demographics? Well, yeah, and, absolutely. And we've seen this too with behavioral events. In the, and I talk about this a lot, but so in California, in the gubernatorial recall, um, when they were recalling Newsom, they would create, I say they, we saw nonprofit involvement, the same nonprofit network involved in that election process, and we saw the similar patterns. And one of the things that came up was the creation of what I like to call behavioral events. If you're looking at it from like a tech perspective where you hit a fork in the road and you either choose A or B, and your decision in that process is most likely in correlation with your ideolog political ideology. And then based on that decision, your ballot is treated differently. Your engagement yes. in the process is treated differently. And so that's essentially what you're describing is this, um, you know, identity politics that's being implemented at a statistical level in order to alter election results. Absolutely. So it's we are um, you are correct. And we're going to assume that based on the color of your skin or your sex, you will not return those ballots unless there is additional follow up. Right. Yeah. 
So I have a question about, you mentioned Michael Spitzer Rubenstein. I think he's a fascinating character. I don't know if you've had him before your committee or not. Um, he worked for National Stay at Home Institute, I believe is what the nonprofit's called. Yeah, and it sounds like they picked him up out of New York and they put it, flew him into Wisconsin to help hijack election administration in Wisconsin. What do you know about Michael Spitzer Rubenstein and has he come before the committee? Have you guys subpoenaed him? Do we have any news on what he's doing now? So since we are a state, I don't have federal powers to drag anybody in, right? Um, Michael Spitzer Rubenstein is quite a character. His emails are all over the state of Wisconsin, including the Wisconsin Five members. Um, his ability to coordinate and then build this program with uh, USDR um, it was instrumental. Michael Spitzer Rubenstein is not just a political strategist. He is a data tech nerd, and that's his history that you saw in Chicago was his ability to build these programs to allow them to have that real-time information. Tim, you, you mic'd out. I didn't know if you wanted to or not. I, I can't see your mic anymore. But um, so, I mean, the guy on election day in the state of Wisconsin had five, you know, four out of the five keys necessary to open the, the um, where we were having central count in Green Bay. Think about that. His name is on the contract that we found from the facility. It says very clearly, Michael Spitzer Rubenstein with the security team is to open the facility with the ballots, the machines, the poll workers in the, in the city of Green Bay on election day. This guy, not your clerk, is the one that was listed on the contract. That's crazy. Well, I think that's really wild because you're talking about this consistent issue of access to public data by private partisan individuals. So we have this with the voter navigators and their access when it comes to, you know, the, the systems as a whole. We have this with Michael Spencer Rubenstein and his access to that technology to build out a, essentially a, a tracking system as well as the central count location. And then we have this issue with FIDO keys that I know Tim was wanting to ask about and the access to the poll books themselves, because we see this in Pennsylvania and most of the areas where the CPCL was involved, that not only were they somehow involved in the administration, but there's some kind of front end access to poll books. Um, would you mind talking about the FIDO key issue and what's been discovered there? And then also, could you explain to me, is the is a FIDO key a physical um, device? Is it a pin? Is it a, an encryption of some sort? What exactly is that and how does that access operate? And then what's been the discoveries there? So, you know, the point of the FIDO key is almost like having a, a FOB, right? That gives you an additional security level. But how are you going to manage that? As if you've heard from some of these clerks have a pile of them that are in an envelope in a drawer. And the point is that, yes, there's additional security with having a FIDO key, but who manages the FIDO keys? How often are the FIDO keys updated? Uh, are people requested them back? So like any security measures we have, I'm again going to be, I'm going to stand up and say the clerks do the best job that they right. can. But if you're if, if you don't consider the FIDO keys essential, you have too many, they're just in a drawer that's unlocked. Um, or if you have back end access through the servers, you know, this is the world that we live in. Let's not kid ourselves. How much value do they have? So in the state of Wisconsin, the only one, Supposedly, the only the only way that you can make a change to a voter is by the clerk themselves, who has to be a provider, ha has to have this kind of access. And some of our smaller clerks do not have this access. Larger municipalities do. They can work for them or WEC itself. Now, that's a whole different conversation, right? If the Wisconsin Election Commission has access we actually made an open records request to them. Who can change when, show, show us the list of active or inactive, the state of Wisconsin, that's a huge list of voters who has access to the, and the conversation really said $100,000 and we have to shut the system down for five weeks. So no, we're not gonna tell you who is making changes and how and, 
And I think that led to the question about transparency then, right? And does the system, I'm, I'm sorry, but does the system even track that information? So like, for example, if well, I have a FIDO key and I have a pin, is it going to say this FIDO key did this, this, and this, or this person did this, this, and this, or does it just, because you have a FIDO key, it's blank check? Um, it, there is, but we have not been given access to that. So the, I, what, what your question is, the very first question we had about Michael Spitzer Rubenstein is, we asked, is he on that list? Give me the list of everybody from um, well before, like June of the election till the election itself. Let me see all these people. And I was shocked. I can show you the list. It's a huge list of people. Who have access? Wow! You know, for this time. <laughs> yeah. So that's not. I and that's not like I twenty have, point font or anything, is it? Uh, I mean, it's like. <laughs> so I mean, as we went through this list, we had some people who work, um, you know, in, in the gardening division, had access. All right, we have some people that were were landscapers that had access. I'm sure they were just putting in information, but that changes the whole security of a system. When you mm -hmm. see a list like this, you know, it's, it's a double-sided two font and you go, a lot of people certainly have access to the system. Is that the right system? Is that not the right? What's the oversight? And I think that's what your question was. You were talking to me about our role as legislators is oversight to ask these questions. I mean, that is what the people have sent us to, you know, for the state of Wisconsin to mm -hmm. do, correct? That totally makes sense. And Tim, your mic is back up. We'll need to wrap up here in just a moment, but I want you to know that your audio is back if you have to. Yeah, and I, why, sometimes I mute it for volume. I've got a couple more things I want to ask if I have a minute. Sure. Um, I want. I mean, people, when we talk about fraud or we talk about the mismanagement of the election in Wisconsin, People always want to know, well, would it have affected the outcome of the election? That's what people want to know. And I know that, you know, Biden won Wisconsin by 20,000 votes in the official count. You know, when we talk about, you've talked about FIDO key access, we've talked about CTCL and, and how that was hijacked. We mentioned democracy in the park, which is where uh, Milwaukee and another city were allowed to go out there and collect ballots where nobody else was allowed to. Did this, you know, re-engineering of the election process, did it, did it impact 20,000 ballots or more? Um, what, you know, and, and oh, and I should include and definitely confined, you know, does it matter in the total, the totality of Wisconsin? Does it matter? So, um, and definitely confined, huge jump, uh, drop boxes, uh, telling special voting deputies that they, that would mean helping seniors and senior facilities, having a Democrat being uh, excluded in this mm -hmm. election the private money that came into the state, those four things never happened before an election in 2020. And those four things had nothing to do with the legislature. There was no vote. There was no impact that way. So those four things, if you were to ask me, never happened before. And each one of them had an impact to some level in the 2020 election in Wisconsin. And, and there was... No citizen involvement in that. And you're saying what I think you said something like 50,000 plus first time voters uh, through indefinitely combined by mail without photo ID and in a race that was decided by 20,000 votes. Yeah. Well, then think of the special voting deputies. I think some of you have seen the seniors that were asked to vote who can barely hold their head up. Right. Mm -hmm. That there was no special voting deputies there to say, listen, this person who has been declared incompetent should not be getting a ballot. That happened as well. We have how many senior facilities in the state of Wisconsin that we now know really had no chain of custody on those ballots. Right. We've spoken with Lori Roman about that. Um, her, her group's been doing some investigations around that and talking about individuals with dementia who don't know their children's name being given a ballot and they haven't voted before or people being put in front of a television and then how they react to the news is supposedly determining the, the trajectory of their vote. And at that point you have to wonder, well, I don't know if wonder is even the right word. It, it's very concerning that we're saying, oh, we are actually forcing or compelling these people 
to vote when they really don't have the cognitive capacity or, or voice in this regard. And Wisconsin has a very unique provision. I believe it's in your constitution um, where you really can't comp compel or solicit a vote in that way. Would you mind sharing about that briefly? So two things, um, I think it's elder abuse. Yep. When you have somebody who's been declared incompetent and you're giving them a ballot and still saying, that, I mean, that, that that's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but the other point, in the state of Wisconsin, um, election day is your right. And in, in Wisconsin, you can show up not on the list. You show your ID, you can vote. I mean, we're one of the few states, you can just do that. You don't have to be on any list. But the two weeks prior is a privilege in the state of Wisconsin. It's a privilege to vote early. And for that, we require a few things, as, as anybody would. Uh, that then you have to be on the list itself and you have to, if you're going to make out an absentee ballot, you need a witness, you need a signature, all of these things. So uh, very clearly in the Constitution of the state of Wisconsin, we make that distinction between Election Day and the privilege of voting early. Right. OK, let me ask this um in Virginia this year in Richmond, I was in their Senate Elections Committee, and they were looking at overhauling our state elections board. So I want to ask you, a big concern that came up in Virginia was that um, they didn't want it evenly divided with four Republicans and four Democrats. So that brings me to Wisconsin Elections Commission, because you all have three Republicans and three Democrats. Do you believe it's superior or inferior to have a one-person majority, one-party majority, a seven to a four to three, or a, th or a three to two, or do you think it's evenly split? And the example I'll use is the certification of the election. I believe it was three people, the three Democrats voting to certify the 2020 election, the three Republicans voting not to certify, and I think that they didn't even choose a tiebreaker. They just decided they would they would just certify it without a majority. They actually certified it with the governor without bringing a, a vote to the table is how they did it. And um, so th this becomes the issue. Whatever the process is, if we're not going to follow the laws that are on the books, right, if we're not going to follow the process to the best that we possibly can and not and, and not provide anything other than the, le the laws that we have passed, that it, it's just like many other things, uh, illegal immigration. It's about um, budget issues, right? All of these things, policing, right? And having DAs carry out. If we're going to not follow the laws that we have put in place for elections, our republic is in serious danger then, right? Re re regardless of three, three, two, two, whatever. I mean, I, I implore both sides to realize if we're not gonna create a, a transparent playing field for elections, our country is, it, it, you know, in, in serious jeopardy. Jacqueline, can I, I want to ask about Kanye. I, I have her here. I need to ask about this because I love Kanye. Um, Kanye was running for president in 2020 and the Democrats did everything they could to keep him off of the ballot. So correct me if I'm wrong, if you're familiar with the story, but I, I believe that Kanye's team believed that they had the correct number of signatures to get onto the ballot in Wisconsin. They show up at the WEC headquarters and because of COVID, they've locked down the building, they've locked the doors. Kanye's people are not allowed in and they're calling saying, let us in, let us in, let us in. And they finally come down like 14 seconds after uh, the five o'clock deadline when the people have been out there for a few minutes waiting and calling. And then Weck says, well, at the end of the day, we can't accept your signatures. We can't allow you on the ballot because you were late, even though they were late because you locked the doors and kept them out. I mean, what happened in Wisconsin and why, why was there an anti-Kanye bias that people want to know? Excellent question, because I think five o'clock only changes the five o'clock and, you know, uh, five o'clock in one minute, right? This is the ridiculousness of making our own rules, as you and you made an excellent point. Um, Weck's answer to that was, hey, you needed to have an appointment and you needed to have a better time frame and you shouldn't have waited to the end. Maybe true, maybe not, but um, you're right. Not having Kanye on the ballot, I think, was, uh, or removing other members because an address changed. This becomes, we have an agency that's rogue in the state of Wisconsin, and that is the Wisconsin election. I don't know. They are suing me. They are suing Speaker Voss. They are suing Justice Gableman for doing this investigation. Can you imagine an administrative agency going so far as to sue 
the the chair of the elections for asking questions about supposedly the most perfect election ever. If that doesn't reflect on how how rogue they've become, I don't know what does. Right. The, the most fairest, the most safest, the best, most awesome election of our lifetime. It's it's hard to hear, right? Yeah. I, this is a very weird analogy, but it's stuck in my head. It's like robots or machines when they take over the world because because this administrative body mm-hmm. was created by the legislature. And yeah. so now they're saying the legislature has no authority <laughs> to check the administrative body. Right. This this is so how that, illogical this whole thing has become. They are more powerful than the legislature. Think about that. Megan Wolf and the Wisconsin Election Commission at this point, and because the courts have decided that they're not going to deal with this at the moment, before an election, right, mm-hmm. is more powerful than the legislature, there's no way that that's constitutionally correct. Well, absolutely not. It's not constitutional according to the U.S. Constitution. I mean, that should just fall on its face, in, in, in my non-legal opinion. But um, that's that's The incredible. legislature has the how, the where, the when. That is clear in right, right from the Constitution and for our state Constitution. And here I am having to beg to be able to speak to our own clerks about what the law is versus guidance. Wow. Well, we have to wrap it up just for the sake of time, but I think that's an, a really astounding place to leave it, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, really, really grateful for your time today and grateful for your leadership as it comes to bringing transparency back into the election process. Republican or Democrat, fair elections are the only way that we're going to keep our country together. And so, you know, having this playing field, not having last minute changes, agreeing to the terms before the election have always been considered ideal in making sure that both sides are treated fairly. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Thank you, Representative. Appreciate your time. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much for joining us for the American Voters Alliance podcast. We look forward to seeing you next week on our next episode. Um, and just quick recap, I think Tim and I are both still super astounded. We were just talking offline, but really concerned about this issue that WEC has essentially gone rogue the Wisconsin Election is, um, Commission has gone rogue in the sense of they have separated themselves from their source of governmental authority and said, no, we are actually the ones in charge of this process. And whenever you have an administrative state or an expert, a government expert that says, no, I am the, the end all authority, as we see in the Fauci situation, it becomes a huge issue when it comes to infringement upon American freedoms because we have our government institutions structured with checks and balances for this very reason. So um, kind of the takeaway point, I think, from Representative Branch. And Tim, do you have any last minute thoughts before we close out for today? No, I think that was great. And, and thank you for, for identifying. And I hope to see you guys next week.